looking at Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, the longest sermon we have recorded that Jesus preached, though we know that that the gospel writers took, took portions of those, so it was probably longer than this, but they gave us the essence of it, and it covers Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So many topics are dealt with in the Sermon on the Mount, in this sermon, so I'm going to go into a section, we're just going to look briefly at one section today, that has to do with anxiety and worry, particularly as you worry about, or if you're inclined to do so, how am I going to eat? How am I going to clothe myself? How, how, how will I, I have enough? What will I eat and drink? So beginning in verse 25 of Matthew chapter 6, uh, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, and all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Have you ever had a conversation, a normal conversation, that you were not expecting to be anything exceptional, and yet that conversation, maybe in passing with another person, almost became life-changing? I've had a few of those. I can look back on now. I didn't realize it at the time. One occurred with my own father. Barbara and I had gotten married a few months before this conversation. We were living in South Florida where I was serving on the staff of a church. And then the leadership of the church and we decided also that I should have more education. I wanted to learn how to study and interpret and teach the Bible. So we went to graduate school, to seminary. And we went in a summer to Reform Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. So during that move, we stayed for a few days with my parents in Alabama, and my dad and I went to eat supper together. And whenever he wanted to talk to me, he would take me to Morrison's Cafeteria. <laughs> kind of like an S&S, but not as good. And we were sitting there eating, the two of us uh, were eating and talking, and he said, well, what's your plan? And I went into great detail about plan for how we were going to pay for school, and Barbara was a dietitian, and she was going to work in a hospital, and I was going to be a full-time student and maybe get some part-time work, and where we were going to live. And he just sat there listening as I 
went through my very detailed plan trying to make him as confident as I was trying to give the impression of being confident. And at the end, he just looked at me and he said, aren't you forgetting something? And I was like, well, uh, housing, I've got that covered. We've got two cars, I've got that covered. I said, what? He said, you've got me. He meant, I'm here to help you if you need it. I can help you with that. And you're acting, you're leaving me out of the equation. Aren't you missing something, Chip? I can't remember anything said before in that conversation. I can't remember anything afterwards. But I remember him saying that to me, and it's difficult for me not to read this passage when Jesus says, but your heavenly Father knows that you need all of them, and think maybe Jesus is saying, as you worry about food and drink and clothing, aren't you forgetting something, Christian? In verses 32 through 33, Jesus gives us the reason not to worry, and that is because our Heavenly Father knows that we need all these things. But, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All of this is based on the fact that God is a God who is generous. It's based on God's generosity. It would be one thing for Jesus to say, the Father knows that you need all these things, but he really doesn't care, or he doesn't have the power to do anything about it. But we know through Scripture, and what I want to show you over the next few minutes, is that Scripture from beginning to end is an expression of God's generosity. Now, one of the books that I put on the reading list that's on our First for All webpage is a book by Paul Tripp that was printed in 2018 entitled Redeeming Money. And he's got a section in the back about generosity, and his chapter on God's generosity prompted my thinking on a lot of this chapter or of this sermon came from that, or at least the ideas. Let's do a brief survey. First, let me show you how the generosity of God is seen in the creation. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So we look at the creation, and it declares the glory of God, but it also shows the generosity of God. If you read such things, we, we speak of the fine-tuning of the universe, fine-tuned to sustain life here on earth. One well-known scientist wrote, When you look from the perspective of the scientist at the universe... It looks as if the universe knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, gravity, nuclear force, etc., that all have very precise values. If any one of these constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxy, no stars, no planets, no people. And even Stephen Hawking wrote, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. So why did God fine-tune the universe? so that the sun is a certain distance from the earth, that if we were any closer or, either, or further away, life could not exist. 
why is our atmosphere such that we can breathe it? And if it was changed just a little bit, that would not be possible. He did so because he's generous. We also see his generosity in creation when you just think about the variety of creation. Think of the variety of types of terrain, whether it's deserts or beaches or mountains or the plains or islands or valleys or canyons or cliffs, tundra and ice. And the vast variety is also seen throughout the creation. Think of the myriad of plants, the multitudes of colors and shapes and longevity. I looked up, I, I remember redwoods live a long time, but some live to be 2,000 years. The shortest lived flower is a morning glory. It lives one day. His generosity is shown in how he's created all the various animals, from huge animals like elephants and giraffes to tiny animals like the tiniest bird, which is the bee hummingbird, which beats its wings 80 times a second. So it, it would beat them about 240 times in the time it took me to tell you about the bee hummingbird. Why? Because God is generous. He generously, generously created the world by creating it where we have appetites and senses that can be pleased by it. Think of sights, the colors of the world in which we delight. He could have made it all black. He could have made it all black and white, but he did not. Some of you have great sensitivity to color. Some of us don't have that. I'm married to a woman who is very, very color sensitive. She notices color, but, and I don't even notice. I'm very auditory sensitive. I hear things. But I'll look at a wall and say, well, that wall's white. And she'll look at it and say, no, that's cream. No, that's eggshell. No, that's Navajo white. No, that's snowflake white. It's white. She'll say, no, it's vanilla. Why did God create all of these colors? He did not have to. They really don't serve, uh, to a large extent, uh, a real practical purpose. Our physical lives could have been sustained without the color of beautiful flowers and plants and so forth. So why all of this? Well, evolutionists will tell us it's because of random chance plus time. But Psalm 145 verse 9 says the tender mercies of the Lord are over all his works. He did it because he is generous. Think of the variety of taste that he has given us. He could have created us to eat one food a black glob. Think about if you had to every lunch, breakfast, dinner, always the same thing. And yet he did not. He created us with 2,000 to 10,000 taste buds. And we were made to have variety like that. I have a friend that moved to the United States from the country of Colombia. He hated the United States when this happened. He had to flee for his life from Colombia. And he came to the streets of New York City and he found a place to live, but he could speak no English. And because of his hatred for America, he did not want to learn any English. All that changed over time. But at that time in his life as a teenager, that's how he felt. So he learned hot dog and a Coke. And he would go to some of the stands, food stands around New York, and all he could say was hot dog and a Coke. He told me for months, Chip, that is all I had to eat. I can never eat another hot dog. God didn't create us to eat the same thing all the time. And he gave us variety, variety of taste. That why? Why did he do that? It's the generosity of God. Think of the variety of sounds, oceans, waves, birds overhead, 
thunder in the distance. He created us to hear and distinguish sounds like we heard a few minutes ago when Elliot said we could just end right then, and I started to yell out after the pledge cards are turned in, but I did Why does God do this? Because he is generous. So we see God's generosity in creation. We also see it in the covenant that he made with, with Abraham. But let's go back to the garden with Adam and Eve. He created a perfect place for them to live in a perfect relationship with him. And then they broke the one prohibition that he gave them. They violated. They committed a crime against God. And as a result, they lost that sense that they had, that perfect life with God. They died spiritually. And even though he had to send them out of the garden, he promised to send a redeemer who would bruise the head of the serpent. God could have deprived them of every blessing from that point. He could have punished them with his judgment, but he did not. He provided clothes for them. He continued to provide food for them. He gave protection over them. Why? Because he is generous. And so history from that point on shows us the the back and forth of pain and judgment. Judgment and mercy, pain and blessing, and the Bible records it. And we hear skeptics. I was listening to one yesterday uh, on video say that if God is all-powerful then and if he's all-loving, then when you look at the pain and suffering in the world, then either you have to conclude he's not all-loving or he's not all-powerful. It's a very, very old uh, argument. But people talk about it today like it's new. But think about this. Listen to these words of A.W. Pink. With comparatively rare exceptions, men and women experience a far greater number of days of health than they do of sickness and pain. There is much more creature happiness than creature misery in the world. And God also has given us minds which are able to adapt to circumstances and make the most of them. If you think about the suffering in your life, for most of us, for the vast majority of us, our good days have far outnumbered the days of suffering, the grief that we go through. Uh, is there even, there's not even any comparison when you total up it, it that way. We see great suffering today in the Middle East. We see that as before us and in Ukraine and probably countless other places that are not newsworthy. But relative to the whole human race and every life, it is a very, very small proportion. Why is that? It could have been suffering every day. It's the generosity of God. So then God makes a covenant with a man named Abraham in Genesis 12. He says to him, I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, who was Abraham? Was he a fine, upstanding, moral, God-fearing man? No. He was an idolater. He was a rebel against God. And yet God chooses him. Why? Because of anything he saw in Abraham? No. Because God is generous. And he chose to do so because he chose to do so. And so he makes this covenant with, with Abraham. And he's generous, and it's shown to such people as him. And so through Abraham, this large nation, this large nation is born. And then it's, it's, it goes down to Egypt during a great famine. And it grows and grows and multiplies and multiplies to where it becomes a threat. The number becomes a threat to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And they say, let's make these people, let's make these people slaves, which they do for for several centuries, for some 400 years. And now we see God's generosity in freeing them. 
It's the loving generosity of God that would cause him to raise up Moses and then to harness the forces of nature in order to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham centuries before. And his generosity is different from ours. We often make promises to people. We make agreements, and then because of our circumstances change or our emotions change or we no longer have the capacity to fulfill the promise or we lose interest or we realize we probably should not have, it was over the top what we promised. God is not like that at all. He is faithful. And in his faithfulness to the covenant he made with Abraham hundreds of years before, he delivers them out of slavery to take them to the promised land. So God, in his generosity, unleashes the power to deliver his people from slavery. We also see the generosity in him giving them his law. When they were delivered from slavery, if you think about it, despite what you see in the movies, they were poor, they were traumatized, they were impoverished, they were ungoverned, they were living in a fractured culture. They were basically Egyptianized in their thinking with multiple gods in the cosmos. And so God takes them to Sinai and down in the Sinai Peninsula for the purpose of de-Egyptianizing them. And there at Mount Sinai, he gives to them his most loving and practical gift, which is his law. And in those laws, he generously teaches them what they did not know, how to live, how to live before him, how to live with one another, how to handle conflict between themselves and with foreigners, what to eat, what not to eat, how to do business with one another, how to worship him correctly, how to mete out justice when people have been injured, and countless other things. So giving them his law was not a statement of his authority. It was a statement of his generosity. Parents, if you have children, you give them rules for their own protection. Don't put your finger in the light socket. Don't ride your bicycle out in the street. That's not because you've got, you're a head case. That's because I want you to live. I don't want you to get hurt. I love you, and I'm generous. And that's what God did by giving his law. We also see God's generosity of the incarnation of Christ. God, in his generosity, sends the amazing gift of the Messiah. 700 years before Jesus is born, the prophet Isaiah says that for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Why? Because God is generous. One person speculated that no other definition of generosity is to be found anywhere or anytime better than the 12 words of the beginning of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Why? He is generous. And even Jesus said in Mark 10, for even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why? Because God is generous. We also see the generosity of the cross. What could be more generous than a perfect man willingly laying down his life and bearing the punishment that's due for other people? But Jesus said in John 10, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. The generosity of the giving of the Holy Spirit who gives us new life. He regenerates us, opens our eyes, opens our ears to hear the gospel. He bears fruit in us such as joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness 
In self-control, he comforts us in our sorrow. He guides us into all truth. He transforms us into the image of Christ. He prompts us and leads us and enables us to follow the Lord. He gives various gifts in the local church for the equipping and building up of the saints here on earth. Why? Because God is generous and he gives the Holy Spirit to his children. I could go on and on. I could talk about the generosity of him giving us scripture, the generosity of the local church, but the last one I want to mention is the generosity of heaven. He not only blesses us with rich spiritual lives here and now, but he invites us to eternity that is rich beyond our imagination, where there will be a new heavens and a new earth, where suffering and sorrow and sin will be no more, and there will be peace and harmony between people and with them and God. So when he calls us in verse 33 of Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, He is calling us to be part of his mission of generosity on earth. The passage I read, and even going back to verse 19 of Matthew 6, sets up a clear contrast between making our lives about the temporal, of just storing up earthly treasure, he calls it, and obsessing about our own personal needs, and even worrying about that and not realizing we have a heavenly father, or seeking first the kingdom of God. So what Jesus is teaching is that financial wisdom, maybe a better word, is financial sanity, begins with believing that you really do have a heavenly father if you are in Christ, who loves you and who will supply what you need. And so, as we at times may be anxious and worried and preoccupied with money and security and how to get it or how to keep it and how not to lose it and what to do with it, perhaps God is saying, aren't you forgetting something? You've got me. Let's pray together. Our Father, you are a generous God. We rarely think about it, we rarely acknowledge it, and we live in a world that despises you by and large and blames everything bad that happens on you and treats the blessings of life as if they just naturally occurred. So we humble ourselves before you. May we see how generous you've been to each of us and that our our lives and our plans and our actions and Uh, Our relationships would be centered upon that. Thank you for your undeserved love and mercy and grace that you show to each of us. May our trust, may the trust of every person here be in Jesus Christ as their Savior and King. And we pray in his name. Amen.